Welcome to the Generation 21 podcast with me, Mohammed, and me, Mira, where we sit down with artists and arts leaders to talk about their journeys into the industry. This week, we're sitting down with Grace Isar to talk about the 2,500-year-old instrument that is the rabab, the difference in performance technique between the rabab and sarod, and the major influences on his latest EP, Letters to My Best Friend. If I could start with the, the rabab, we'll kind of talk a bit about what it is. Sure. In just a moment, but can we begin with kind of how you got into playing uh, an instrument like that? Um, for me, part of it was lineage. Um, I grew up with music, music as far back as I remember has had a very prominent role, not only in my life, but in my family's life. So, you know, a big part of the immigrant hustle um, was finding a way to feel at home in a place that wasn't necessarily home and music was that for us you know i remember when we were younger um, every friday night we would all get together and just play music and you know those that were proficient in any kind of instrument would would have an instrument with them and i remember like my aunts that didn't necessarily play anything specifically would either clap or grab, you know, pots and pans and and bang against those. And so for me, I, I began my formal training around six or seven, uh, both in um, Eastern classical music and Western classical music uh, in tandem. Um, the rabab specifically, there was a time that was more or less like a trial period when I was younger and uh, when I was younger specifically, it was like considered one of those like child prodigy types where I just played everything. And um, before before this, I had um, I had dabbled and I had played a few different instruments. But when um, I first got a rabab around the age of twelve or so, um, you know, with everything else, I had felt like there was something missing instrument-wise, be it like sitar or violin or guitar or whatever. Um, it was it was different with the rabab. And it always sounds, you know, super lame and cheesy whenever I have to, like, explain this, like, you know, this feeling where, you're, like, your heart is full and it's, like, yeah. you know, where you feel complete. But, yeah, it was exactly that. And, you know, that was enough for me to want to dedicate my whole life to the one instrument. So what actually is the rabab? So what family of instruments does it come under and what, what's it made out of? Um, it'd be considered a lute, right? Okay. A string instrument. Um, this specific rabab um, originates in what it is now present day Afghanistan and um, about 2,500 years old. We can date it um by its appearances in different places in history, specifically like Sufi poetry. So even like, you know, Maulana Balkhi, uh, who um, y'all would consider um, uh, Rumi, it's uh, mentioned in his poetry as well. So um, it's an old in instrument. And um, for the longest time, it, it was um, only found in the folk idiom and only in the last maybe 100 years has this specific rabab um, found a place in classical music as well. 
the um, the Afghan rebab is made and or I mean it should be made from mulberry wood. Okay. Um, the thing with the rebab is that there's different variants throughout the region, um, you know, ranging from Central Asia into um, into South Asia. So there's a form of rebab in Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, and India. It's interesting that kind of it's only now kind of despite having such a long history it's a, it's actually quite a recent development that it's been introduced and used in classical music a lot more um but before that it was um like you said it was used in folk music a lot more i don't know if there's any parallels in in kind of indian classical like that um maybe the santur i don't know something like that because that wasn't until yeah, she yes. yeah. that that's and, that that's exactly it yeah mm. yeah yeah even though santur is used in Persian classical music mm-hmm. um, and in their folk music, but you're right, Shivji would would be the one that we would accredit to, you know, bringing this instrument that that was a very much a folk instrument into the um, you know classical realm as well. So for us, it was a uh, it was a person named Ustad Muhammad Marhanzeb, and uh, we accredit you know the introduction of the rabab into the classical realm to him. I want to pick up on something that you said um, earlier, which is about the immigrant experience. So um, part of the reason why South Asian arts exists is exactly for the reason that you mentioned as well. It's that kind of connection to heritage and culture. And whereas we do it, um, we obviously we operate in a, within a UK context and yourself in, in a US context, but it's a very similar sort of thing, isn't it? I suppose I have seen that in my childhood and growing up. And as far as I can remember, um my parents, they've always been immersed in Indian classical music, but that was as a result of their parents um, sort of, yeah, wanting to keep that connection alive. And um, I don't think it was necessarily their intention to follow that, into the to make that their profession. But somewhere along their journey, that connection intensified and that became their passion, which is really interesting and now they can't live without it. I actually wanted to pick up on something that I heard you mention in passing, uh, but I think you mentioned that you have two degrees. Oh yeah, ways. good yeah. ears. One of them was political mm-hmm. science, I think. Yeah, poly So science. did you, were you doing music as well as studying or did you take a break from that or... Did you have to try and strike a balance between focusing on your studies and your music? Like, how did that? Well, work? I mean, music—it's—it's uh, it's pretty much my life, and I had been training from a very young age, and so for me, you know, college and university was a chance to maybe explore something else. So I wanted to—I uh, I wanted to not so much take a break from from music because you know. Even during, you know, uh, my college days, um, you know, I was still training and still performing and honing in on on that specific craft. But I saw it as an opportunity to, you know, expand my interests and uh, learn more deeply about other things. So I majored in both poli-sci and religious studies. Okay. Yeah. So kind of in addition to performing, you also compose a lot. And what would you say your major influences are? 
in composition, I'm influences wise, I draw from from a wide range um, of music that spans, you know, a lot of different cultures. So be it, you know, Indian classical music to Western classical music, the the more contemporary um, classical music that came out during the latter 20th century, stuff like Terry Riley and Stephen Reich, who okay, there, yeah, who yeah. them, who themselves were um, heavily influenced by in, in Indian, Indian classical, classical music, and then you know George Harrison and the Beatles, and and so you know I, I listen to a lot of music, and um, whether I'm aware of it or not, I have internalized a lot of it, and um, uh, I'm very interested in creating music that can't generally be labeled and or um, hasn't been heard before. Uh, whereas someone else might just continue a specific tradition for the mm -hmm. sake of it or, you know, just f for the sake of having a specific audience already there, you know, f uh, for them to listen to whatever. So, so you have sort of referred to Western classical music and Eastern classical music. We're always talking about Indian classical music and like specifically. So what what does Eastern classical music comprise of, I suppose? For me, it would be Indian classical music. Um, North Indian classical music is not only the um, the the music of North India, but it, it's, um, you know, the classical tradition of Afghanistan, of Pakistan, of Nepal. Uh, so it's a shared music. Uh, we're all under the umbrella of Indian classical music, though in different regions, you you know, just the same as like language and English, right? There's different dialects. And so ours, ours being, you know, in Afghanistan, um, the dialect might be different and we may have, we have um, a couple of our different thalas, which are, you know, the rhythmic cycles. Okay. Um, and a couple different, Rags that are, you know, very, you know, Afghan specific, but other than that, it's the same music. Um, so let's talk about, um, you won a Canadian Screen Award um, for Best Original Song, which um, in Canada is the equivalent of, I guess, what we have as the BAFTAs here or the Oscars in the States um, for The Crown Sleeps. And that was for the film The Breadwinner. Um, what's the song about and how did it feel to kind of win such a prestigious award? Well, the, the the director of the movie had um, had reached out to me. Um, and, and who was the director? Nora Taumi. She's um. It's this um animation studio from Ireland, and they made this movie about. It's an animated movie about about this girl in Afghanistan, and um, produced by Angela Jolie's production company. Mm. Yeah. yeah um what it felt like to win the award i remember specifically i was i was practicing with um with with a group of musicians and i didn't even know right i i got a notification on twitter from the canadian screen whatever twitter handle that i had won and i just like remember looking at the double player i was like sure but i think i just won an award he was like, oh, yeah? I'm like, yeah. And then we just continued practicing. And then, you know, I was on tour 
for when um you know the award would have been presented so i i couldn't actually be there to accept the award um but yeah i don't know it, it never really it didn't really feel like a big deal accolades are just you know they don't really make that big of a difference in i, I mean in my life personally um it's an honor uh, for me just to know that people listen i think that's the coolest thing um, like awards and all this other stuff doesn't really mean anything to me but the fact that people listen and appreciate your music is is award enough for me you know for me this music being sans lyrics um you know, when I write something, I write with a specific intention, and uh, there's there's always something in there that I'm trying to transmit. And the coolest thing, you know, the coolest thing is when people can catch that, you know, that like telepathic trans transmission from my mind. Um, that's just that's just a really cool feeling, you know, because that means that whatever I have you know, composed has, has resonated with someone at a level, um, at a more of a subconscious level, because, you know, words give it away very easily, you, you know, but when you embed, you know, feelings and or whatever you're, you're, you're trying to get across in melody, um, and someone's able to catch that, that's, that's really cool. Apparently, you you learned this, the the rabab from a sarod player. Yeah, I've learned from a lot of different places, right? So, and I've been lucky enough to learn from a lot of different people. So, I've um, I started out learning from uh, you know learning sitar. Yeah. Uh, and I started uh, learning uh, what would be considered the predecessor of the sitar, which is tambur. I've I've played the violin, I played the good guitar, mandolin, et cetera, et cetera. I try to take all of this and see what's applicable to this instrument, right? So, you know, drawing from all of all of the different places that I have um, you know, had some experience from. So with with specifically the sarod, um uh it's it's mostly I'm gonna use the word mostly, mostly accepted that the rabab is the predecessor of the sarod, right? Uh, the story, as I've heard it, they were Afghan horse traders that would, you know, be back and forth between India and Afghanistan. And and in the midst of these people, there were uh, rababis. And then a group of them just settled in India and seeing the, the tradition the musical tradition and specifically the vocal music they wanted to adapt the instrument where it could have more of that vocal quality and so um you know they just made a couple tweaks and that's all it is um they got they got rid of the nylon strings or what would be then a gut right gut strings and they put on the steel strings so that for the longer sustain and a steel plate to be able of, um, 
for means, which would be like, a, what would it be in Western music? Like a gl- glissando? Oh, yeah, yeah, that kind of rising up. And- right, right. Yeah. Something that, that, that would allow the instrument to have more of a... Um, of a vocal quality because mm-hmm. that's all you know in Indian classical music north Indian classical music i can't speak for south indian music but um you know we're all trying to emulate the original instrument which is the voice you know be it sitar sarangi saro whatever um um so yeah I'm not sure if I answered that question. But well, um, a couple of tangents. No, no, that it was great. I mean, I think what what was interesting me was is was there any sort of differences that sort of that's influenced or made your technique on the rabab different? Sarod. Yeah. The rabab is the sarod's like grandfather, right, or father, and so. For me, seeing what the rabab could become was very interesting, but also trying to maintain what the rabab is, yeah. if that makes sense, right? Because if I evolve my playing completely, then I'm just playing sarod, mm. right? So it's that so it's that balance uh, of bringing in the um, you know what what we'd call like the gaeki the the vocal quality of sarod to rabab but still it you know make sure that it's the rabab right absolutely otherwise i might as well be playing sarod but i think that's what what kind of kept me interested is that it was that challenge you know it was the the hours and hours and hours of practicing how, how do i play a five note mean on an instrument that has you know su- you know such little sustain so it was a lot of experimenting you know with different tuning and uh different gauges of string how do i adjust my playing so that um i can bring again that like more of that vocal quality to um to this instrument let's talk about the the latest the on latest newest i don't know what the correct adjective is i think they're both correct um ep that you you have released it's now uh, out it is it's called letters to my best friend mm. i yeah i really enjoyed it i love the cool. kind of um yeah i think there's something that i read somewhere i think about your playing which is that it's not particularly showy it's not like i don't know if i don't want to offend you but it's i'm offended i'm offended <laughs> it's not um Like if you're looking for like lots of like really really quick notes played in succession, then you, you know, then perhaps another EP is where you're going to be looking. It's kind of it's a lot calmer than that. Yeah, I think is that correct? Is that I, I think there's a balance because uh, there are some parts and and uh, passages where you know where I am playing some like fast stuff and virtuosity is there, but it's how you use that virtuosity and your restraint. What you had mentioned about like a flurry of notes, like there was a style of guitar that was introduced in the '80s, right? And so just following, you know, after like 20 years of all this, like you know, blues-based pentatonic stuff, where there was this explosion of this neoclassical type of shredding. It was just shredding, like just a flurry of notes, and uh, the virtuosity was there. 
and it's it's impressive the the technique you know guys like Ingwe Malmsteen and Steve I and all this stuff but the one critique that it's always gotten and to this day is that it's cold and it has no feeling whereas you know you'd listen to BB King and he would just play you three notes and just slay you with three notes right so it becomes a question of are you serving the music or are you serving yourself and your ego and um the latter would be serving the music you know what are you trying to convey is it something that is you know look at me you know look how look how badass i am i could do that right i i can sit and like just shred for five minutes straight on a track and be like that's it and someone will listen and be like wow this guy's technically super proficient but again does that serve the music no it's more or less about me you know building me up and i think music should be about the, the music it should not necessarily be about you and your ego and your insecurities so with the ep um again i think i think it's a good balance of of um you know the specific feeling and or message that i have that i'm trying to put uh put forward and then you know places where i am playing something a little bit more technically faster or or something a little flashy but it's in service to the music you know yeah i i really no i really really enjoyed it actually i think i would encourage everyone to listen to anyone who's listening to get a hold of it so for the people that don't know what your ep is about is there a specific overall message or is every track sort of trying to convey something different oh it's just a bunch of heartbreaky things i'll just leave it there okay you know and the reason why music has been so important in my life is because there was a time especially when i was younger where where i wasn't really able to um like literally i wasn't able to communicate really well you know i had to learn english at a you know like an older age you know like around like six or seven you know going to esl and stuff i had a really bad stuttering problem like really really bad and i was kind of like a weird kid you know and so music was the only way that i could really like you know express myself and you know on you know even until this day i'm not like super eloquent with my speaking but but i've always found that it's the only real way for me to be able to express myself um fully and that's even with this ep so you know i had i had gone through specific you know personal things and and this is and and that's just that it's you know telling the story of of who i was and where i was at that specific time and you know as i mentioned before there's people that you know if you listen without like the ears that you've been listening to everything else with you know listen at a deeper level you're able to get that uh, and you're able to feel that on a different level there's that often saying isn't it that suffering is the fuel of all art Ugh, i don't I hate know that how, cliche yeah, right 
I'm like, why can't somebody be happy and write something happy? I've been asking that question the past year. <laughs> it's just... Like, why? Why does it always have to come from such misery? Misery right? and darkness, why? right? There have been, been a number of poetry events that I've now attended. And um, it's like, oh my God, the amount of suffering that's just kind of spoken about on stage. It's like, bloody hell, this just reliving your trauma here, sat in the audience. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a cathartic poetry, though, so, yeah. experience. It's not just poetry, it's art in general. Mm. Being a painting, being music, be it poetry. Um, you know, have you ever been like so angry where you just, you just, you just yell? You just have to like, or like so upset where you just like, you're crying into a pillow because oh, yeah. there's no there's no appropriate release and i think art gives you that release where you're just able to just pour it all out into into music and or poetry and after you're done you're able to like take a breath and step back and be like oh wow yeah that's that yeah you know because what are words words are so limiting man you know, words, we make up words out of letters and we've ascribed different sounds to different letters, right? But think of all the sounds that have existed and exist far beyond what, what, what you know, our language is. You know, so how much can you really say with words? As a poet, I should probably not say anything. <laughs> but it's a really interesting but it's a fair point, idea, actually. isn't it? Because music is made up of so much, and you know, in terms of messages, it's it's unlimited, isn't it? The amount that you can convey. I mean, there's so much that's unknown, right? Words, and like you, you know, we've again ascribed these to things we already know. Mm -hmm. But think of how much we don't know. You know, just in our world, I'm not even talking about like beyond this world, right? Um, and I think that's why music is so powerful, you know, and something that could be, you know, sans lyrics where it's not so obvious. Um, I think it encompasses everything that can't be put into words, everything that we don't know specifically. I must have been in Stephen Fry's autobiography, and that guy's a massive opera lover. And I think he was quoting somebody else when they said that music begins where words end. There's this one analogy that I remember talking about a couple weeks ago, and that's, you know, think of think of the last time you were super upset. You know, uh, I'm not sure what y'all call it here in England, but, um, you know, that point where you feel like you're going to cry. We, we would say, like, that there's a, like, you have, like, a ball in the back of your throat or something. Like, that's a really crappy way of, like, of trying to express that, right? But that's because that's how, that's as far as words go, right? But that's not how it feels. Think of all the anxiety you feel at that point. Think of the range of emotions you're you're going through and words can only go so far, right? I feel like I have a lump in my throat. Mm. A lump in my throat. Like what is that, right? That's that's as far as words can get us. How accurately does that express what you're going through at that time though 
mm, my in my perspective not not very well words can only really define what we know yeah <laughs> i know that's kind of ironic given you know this is a podcast and i'm and we're just speaking just speaking right but let's let's bring this back to kind of um a, di- a different topic not so esoteric uh, uh, no quite um, are there any compositions or or, rag, or ragas that you particularly like to play or you feel a strong connection to or kind of when you hear it, you, you can like listen to a lot of it? Yaman always feels like home. Do you feel the same thing, Mira? Um, that's mainly the first rag that people are taught. It's the first rag that we're, so, that, yeah. that we're taught. It always feels like home. It doesn't matter where I am, Yaman feels like home. What is home for you? Is it a place? Is it a thought? Where where does that lead you to? There's a warmth. If that makes sense. I just feel like a warmth in my heart. Wow, it sounds cheesy. But it's true. Uh, <laughs> it's just... Yeah, it's like the warmth you would feel, you know, as a 10-year-old in... in in your mother's arms, right? Or in the kitchen when your grandmother's cooking. Not necessarily a place, but that warmth, you know? And that's that's what Yemen is for me. I know it's like an evening rag and, you know, there's sunset and all this stuff, but for me specifically, that's what it is. You know, it's this, it's just this warm feeling. Um, for the next generation of musicians wanting to break into the industry or else get better at their art, um, what advice would you give them? Don't pander to the masses, you know, because there's enough of that. Um, try to do something that, 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 that sets you apart from everyone else. Just because with the advent of technology, there's been such like an oversaturation of music um you need to do something that makes you distinguishable from everyone else make sure music is done with the correct intention i never made music to be famous i never made music to to make a lot of money i don't make a lot of money and yet you know i've never gone hungry you know and a lot of that i feel it's because i go about it with the correct intention um if you're if you're true to yourself and you're true to the music and uh, true to the message you want to convey i think that's what resonates with with people um don't get caught up in all this like there's this is again technology and social media specifically has really changed the, the way that we look at the world and the way that we look at ourselves. And, you know, our society has become so, like, voyeuristic and also, like, narcissistic. Or, you know, you don't let that get into the music because it already has. And you can, it, it doesn't, it won't carry the weight um, that's needed to penetrate people at a level where, you know, they could appreciate music. Um, is that music should be a, a, like a statement, a true statement that comes from, you know, comes from your heart and not, and not necessarily geared towards, well, you know, this is going to, 
this is going to be a banger or this one's, this one's going to make me like this or that. Um, cause at the end of the day, if, if your music sucks, you're, you can still like, you know, look at yourself in the mirror at night and be like, you know, I'm not a total sellout. Yeah. I mean, that's all I tell anyone that is ever dumb enough to ask me for advice, right? Is, is be true to yourself, be true to the music and, um, and, and approach the music, you know, with a good intention and do something that sets you apart from everyone else. So our last question to you as we ask every guest is what are you currently listening to? What am I currently listening to? This morning, I was listening to Music for 18 Musicians by Steve Reich. You know, I haven't listened to a lot of Steve Reich. Oh, you should. I feel like I'm missing out. Like you I are. listened to, I've listened to Philip Glass. I listened to Max Richter, I love. Um, John Adams every now and again. Philip Glass, um, I think, was my intro to like you know the more other far out minimalism type of stuff like yeah. Steve Reich. It's a funny story. I was he, uh, a few years ago. I was contacted by this group where they were collecting music from from different musicians all all over the world, and um, I ended up on a track with Philip Glass. What? No way. Yeah, which was really that's pretty cool. Which was really wild, and then like. It was produced in a really weird way. It sounded like some weird, like, samba type of thing. But yeah, yeah, Philip Glass. Um, so I was listening to Gawali a few days ago by the one and only Nusrat. Um, and then Beyonce a few days after that. Um, <laughs> what? The two in... together, I was just like... What, Nusrat and Beyonce? Well, that's the collaboration that we wish we had, but sadly won't happen anymore. Unless they do one of those hologram things, right? They're, oh, they're, gosh, they're doing that more those. and more. Oh, yeah, they are. I don't um, think anyone's asking for that collaboration, to be That's fair. probably why we need to do it. Um, not that I'm suggesting myself for that project. What have I been listening to? Um, Stevie Wonder, recently. Um, his album, Inner Visions. Um, which tracks... Jesus Children of America I really like that one and there was one other one it might be from a different album Summer Soft it's a really good it's a really good track thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Generation 21 podcast with me Mira and me Mohammed. be sure to check out the podcast page on our website www.saa-uk.org for all episodes, episode note, including our Spotify playlist, where we've compiled all the pieces of music that we have been listening to with our guests. And trust me, you're going to want to hear that eclectic collection. You can find more from Generation 21 on your favourite podcast apps and follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook with the handle at South Asian Arts UK. See you in our next episode. Bye.